We'll go ahead and take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And we're looking at uh, one of Jesus' six statements that he makes at the end of Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the table back behind that pillar. Um, feel free to stand up and grab one or throw your hand in the air and someone will bring one to you. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning, just two verses, verses 31 and 32, but these verses are packed uh, with a lot of things that we need to discuss. And so I see it's 1040 now, so we got some work to do. So it's maybe a bit of an understatement to say that if we look at these two verses, we'll read them in a minute, but if we look at these two verses, it would be a bit of an understatement to say that these two verses don't come with a significant amount of sensitivity for many of us in, in our world, as they, they talk about the, particularly the, the understanding, or Jesus' understanding of divorce and remarriage. And this is an area of our lives where there's probably a significant amount for most of us, either us, ourselves, or a loved one, a family member, a friend, might have experienced something significant in, in the way of an emotional trauma as it pertains to the ending of a marriage in an unfortunate manner. But as we look at these this morning, we see uh, just a heightened level of complexity. We're going to kind of look at everything that Jesus has to say and everything that the New Testament has to say to us about this issue. We're going to draw in some things from the Old Testament and hopefully develop a, a, an understanding of what divorce and remarriage, what the picture of that looks like for us here in, in, in Scripture. But what we want to do when we come to a text like this is look at where we've been. Where have we been so far in the Sermon on the Mount? And what have we been thinking about in particular? What have we been thinking about? Um, we've been asking ourselves some pretty significant questions during our time in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to ask ourselves the question that we've been asking ourselves so far um, as we've looked at these two things previously, anger and lust, and now this morning divorce and remarriage. The question that we're asking and the question that Jesus wants to answer for us is what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And God is setting apart a people for himself to display to the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so these ones are citizens of the kingdom. We must consider what comes at the beginning of this section Matthew 5, verse 20, when, Matt, when Jesus says to his disciples, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that comes at the front of sort of this section of Scripture. And Jesus says this because he wants his disciples to be that the, those who are righteous, who have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does that look like? It's an internal newness that matches outside action. The religious leaders of Jesus' day emphasized the outside only. But Jesus came and he said, I want to emphasize the inside. What comes, what happens externally, the external action that you are called to in the New Testament must be accompanied by internal transformation. So this is the bet Jesus is coming at. And if you look at verse 48 in Matthew chapter 5, he concludes this section by writing this, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus calling his disciples to perfection. We look at that verse and we say, how is that possible? How can that be? Jesus is calling his disciples to completeness, to wholeness, to a full-on understanding that who they are must match both inside and outside. 
External morality is only part of the picture. It must come from the inside, from newness. And so Jesus is describing for his hearers, for his disciples, what kingdom citizens look like. They seek to have right relationship with others because they understand that right relationship with God's creation indicates right relationship with God. So that's our lens then this morning as we look at these two verses. As we look at verses 31 and 32, that's our lens this morning. When we come to verses like this, again, we'll read them in a second, but when we come to verses like this, it's important for us to recognize our tendency to lose our mind to read these things in a vacuum a little bit. We look at a text like this, and maybe we gloss over it, maybe we brush past it, because it's difficult to us. But maybe we look at it, we start to think thoughts and, and bring other things in, bring in a cultural narrative that, that isn't necessarily contained here within the text. So what we must not do when we approach a text like this is to begin to read the Bible in a different way than we've been reading it for, say, the past six to eight verses. It's sort of like being this high-functioning, successful person and then, and then talking to your middle school crush for the first time. You're a totally different person in that instance. But we don't want to do that when we approach the Bible. We want to come to it and we want to be consistent and we want to be thorough. And we want to be constant in the way that, that we read it. So we need to keep that in mind as we look at these two verses. The other thing that we need to keep in mind here is that oftentimes we're confronted in a text like this with our bent to sort of blow in cultural winds. To allow culture to dictate what we think and who we are. Jesus will say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, he'll say this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And in that, if we're exposed to have a tendency to bow before cultural narrative, we clamp down hard. We don't want to come up on the wrong side of an issue like this. We don't want to come up on the wrong side of an issue like this. Why? Because... It oftentimes means that we will be maligned. It means that we'll be belittled. It means that we will be marginalized. It means that we will be persecuted. And who wants that? Who wants that? But we need to remember back to what Jesus says in the eighth beatitude. Verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus knew that his followers would encounter this type of ridicule because they were called to be strange. They were called to be different. They were called to look different from the world. They were called to be set apart. They were called to be holy. And also, as we approach something like this, we, don't, we just don't like the complexity found in this topic. And we're going to explore some of the complexities that exist here in these two verses and throughout the course of the New Testament as it pertains to divorce and remarriage. We're going to explore some of those things, but we don't like that complexity. We like to boil things down to the lowest common denominator, and we like to fall in one camp or the other, and this is exactly what Jesus' contemporaries did, and this is why he even includes this here in the Sermon on the Mount, is because his contemporaries were boiling down to lowest common denominator and throwing people in two different categories, two categories that Scripture never intends to set up for them. 
And so this is a pitfall that we need to avoid at all costs, and we'll talk about that more, like I said. So what we want to do this morning as we look at these two verses is just build this consistent and thoroughly biblical understanding of divorce and remarriage. Can we do that exhaustively in however much time we have left? An hour? No, no, no. Um, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Um, are we still going to have questions about this topic? Yes, we are. So what we want to do is we just want to own this, right? We just want to own that this is a complex issue, a complex topic that can't be fleshed out in one Sunday morning, but needs to be understood, and our understanding needs to be developed over a lifelong of Bible study. And like I said earlier, the reality is that many of us have been impacted by this. Loved ones, close friends, even ourselves. And there's pain here. There's emotional trauma here that comes in this text to us. The complexity here extends beyond just words on a page. The complexity here finds its, its home. It finds its home in the, the deepest recesses of the human heart. And Jesus knows that. Jesus understands the struggles here. He knows intimately the challenges and complexities of life in a sinful world. Just consider with me John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman. She was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew. And our, our world right now might be wrestling through racial tensions. This was as tense as things got between the Jews and the Samaritans. In Jesus' day, Jews believed that God created the Samaritans simply. The only purpose that they had on earth was to fuel the fires of hell. That's what the Jewish people in Jesus' day believed about Samaritans. That doesn't even take into account the fact that Jesus was speaking openly to a woman. Something that a man in their culture never would have done. That doesn't even take into account the fact that she was at the well at midday, which means that she would have gone, she would have, if she could have gone with the women in her culture, in her town, she would have gone with them early in the morning, in the cool of the day. But she didn't, because she was a societal outcast. Because Jesus would point out to her throughout the course of this story, he would point out to her the fact that she had five previous husbands, and was living with a man currently who is not her husband. So here's this woman, this second-rate citizen by default, a serial adulteress. She's from a people group that Jesus' people group would have, ne have no dealings with, and yet this rabbi, this teacher, approaches her and asks her for a drink, openly, in the middle of the day. And she responds and says to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for, for me, a woman of Samaria, which Jesus replies. He replied, this is his reply. He replies, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. What Jesus doesn't say here is important. He doesn't say, if you hadn't screwed up your life by being an adulteress, 
Jesus would have given you living water. No, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me, the, give me a drink. And that's the rub here. Jesus knew that an acknowledgement of who he is would transform this woman from a broken, beat up, societally outcast, racially inferior. Hello? Test? Don't move too much? Well, there goes that moment. He um, knew that it would transform this woman into a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, into a child of the Most High God. And not what she had become in her society, not the labels that she had received there. So let's look at our text then this morning. Let's keep those things in mind, though, as we look at this. Let's keep those things in mind, the mercy that Jesus shows this woman at the woman at the well. Let's keep those things in mind. Let's make some observations from the text that we have this morning before us. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So like we've done with the previous two weeks as we looked at anger and lust, we see in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old. And verse 27, You have heard that it was said. Jesus also says here in verse 31, It was also said. So the disciples have heard something. They've heard something. What is it that the disciples have heard? And Jesus is referring to in the first two of these statements that Jesus makes about anger in verses 21 and beginning in verse 27. These two things come specifically from the Ten Commandments. But this one, Jesus changes the trajectory a little bit, and he speaks from Deuteronomy chapter 24, um, which describes sort of this crazy situation where a man marries a woman, but he finds some indecency in her, so he divorces her, he gives her a certificate of divorce, and then another man marries her, but he finds some indecency in her, gives her a certificate of divorce, the second man dies, and then the first man wants to remarry her, but he can't because of the, the situation here, because of the law. And that, that's what Moses, that's what God communicated to Moses needed to be the case. In both instances, a certificate of divorce is written to this woman. Now, Jesus, okay, background on this, these two verses. Background on these two verses. Jesus, the religious leaders in his day, would have, would have fallen into basically two camps. A rigid camp that said no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstance, and a loose camp. That would have looked like, kind of like our culture does when it comes to marriage. The loose camp would have said that you could divorce your wife for pretty much anything by holding a, a loose definition of indecency from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Why could you divorce your wife? Men could divorce their wives for physical defects and diseases. Men could divorce their wives for, for something as trivial as having no eyebrows, or something as trivial as having one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows. Men could divorce their wives without their husband's consent, if, if without their husband's consent, her parents moved into the same city to be closer to their daughter. This is just a few examples, but, but you see that this is a pretty loose, a, a loose uh, a, a allowance for, for divorce. The point being that there wasn't, there wasn't much here that fell into this camp that people wouldn't have used to divorce their wives. Men wouldn't have used to divorce their wives in the ancient Jewish culture. Women wouldn't have had that right. 
And so this is the position that Jesus is taking a shot at, this loose position of divorce and remarriage. Jesus is taking a shot at that because he clamps down here in verses 31 and 32. And again, this is honestly the one that probably intersects with our culture most clearly, so we can learn the most from this, this understanding. I read an article this week that pulled some experts, uh, marriage experts just in the secular world about the reasons uh, that most people give for getting a divorce. And while Jesus gives here, we'll talk about this exception given, the ground of sexual immorality here in verse 32. The reasons that most people give, the highest volume answers, here are 10. These are the 10 highest volume answers according to these 100 experts. Getting in for the wrong reasons, lack of individual identity, becoming lost in the roles, not having a shared vision of success, the intimacy disappears, unmet expectations, finances, being out of touch, different priorities and interests, and inability to resolve conflict. Put this in the back. So you'll notice here, so the blessing. Time for a new one? Alright, cool. We'll, we'll do that. So you'll notice, like, like bushy eyebrows, most of the reasons are highly subjective, right? Most of the reasons in our culture for getting a divorce are highly subjective. They're based more on this sort of internal, highly personal criteria that looks more like a moving target than dramatic grounds for action. So Jesus is going to going at this loose view of marriage and divorce and remarriage in his culture. So the question then is, what is going on? What has his disciples heard? They've heard whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But the grounds for that is relatively loose. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? Verse 32 gives us that. But it's good for us to, to sort of look at an expanded uh, expanded interaction that Jesus has in Matthew chapter 19. So your Bibles, you see it on the screen behind you, but if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you just to turn there. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9 is what we'll look at. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one wife for any cause? Remember, this is loose camp right now. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses uh, command to one to give a certificate of divorce to send, send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the Pharisees are asking about what camp Jesus falls in, right? Rigid or loose? This is just kind of the question that they ask. Do you fall Is it okay if I can, can I divorce my wife for any cause? Or are you going to say that there's no divorce or no remarriage? But you'll notice then that Jesus doesn't even answer the question, right? He doesn't say anything about divorce and remarriage at all, but he challenges their understanding of Scripture. And, and, and of course, what Jesus quotes here from Genesis 2, of course the Pharisees knew that. They had the, they had the whole 
first five books of the Bible memorized. They had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those memorized. If you ever tried to read those, you understand that that's probably a pretty difficult thing to do. But they persist, right? They, they, they try to drive Jesus into the corner and get him to answer them directly. So verse 7, they said to him, Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? But Jesus' answer, and Jesus' answer is consistent with everything that we've looked at in the Sermon on the Mount so far. He says, your inside doesn't match your outside. The things that you do externally isn't coming from newness. It's coming from hardness of heart. So you might look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're rotting away. So Jesus essentially says, Moses gave you a concession because you don't understand God's intent for marriage, which I gave to you from the creation account just a second ago. And the results of this hardness of heart that in remarriage adultery is committed. Why? Because without proper grounds for divorce, the union is not broken, and the original marriage remains intact. Scott McKnight, he writes this. He's a commentator on this. He writes this about Jesus' words. Jesus is against divorce. He is for marriage. He believes that marriage is sacred, holy, and viable union created by God to make a man and a woman one flesh. Because he believes this about marriage, he believes divorce is always contrary to God's creation designs. Now we hear this and we start to think, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we're moving down this like hyper-conservative path. But what we need to think about here is the thought process that Jesus gives behind the things that he says. And now Matthew records Jesus saying in the midst of all of this, and this has engendered a ton of debate, this sort of exception statement that, that Jesus gives. He writes, in, both in chapter 19 and in chapter 5, he writes, except for on the ground of sexual immorality. And this is going to sort of change everything and hopefully change our minds a little bit about this and how we need to, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, understand what it is that Jesus is saying here. And, and understand some of the complexities. So, divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality, according to Jesus here, is permissible. And that leads to a question then, what, what qualifies as sexual immorality, right? We're going to break this down. Um, most people agree that adultery qualifies as sexual immorality, having a sexual relationship with someone other than someone's spouse. But the way that the word is used here is better to interpret this as sexual sin that arose the marriage covenant relationship. So this is going to get us more down into the nitty-gritty here. This is going to get us more into the nitty-gritty here. Adultery certainly qualifies. But something like entrenchment in, in, in unrepentant viewing of pornography would also qualify. I don't need to continue with examples because what we don't want to do is create a laundry list and hit check boxes because that would fall into the that would constitute hardness of heart as well. But the reason this is the case, the reason that this is the case, that, that Jesus gives this allowance, Paul also writes a reason um, or an exception uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he says this, In the case of one believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, if the unbelieving partner separates, I'm moving too much, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if the unbelieving spouse abandons the believing spouse, there's no obligation by the believing spouse 
to remain married. So what does this have in common with Jesus' exception? Right, because abandonment and sexual immorality, those things seem pretty different. They seem like two very different ideas and concepts. What we need to do is explore the commonality here. We need to explore what these two things have in common. We need to find the commonality. And here's where I think that they're the same. They're both governed by the understanding of a marriage covenant being formed with two people who are claiming to exist for one another. They are both governed by the understanding of the marriage covenant being formed with two people who are claiming to exist for one another. This is the biblical picture of covenant love. What is covenant love? What is covenant love? What, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean? Three things that I think paint that picture for us. One, you're with someone. One, two, you're for someone. And three, you're unto someone. Let me break that down. Let me, let's think about that for a second. What does that mean? What does it mean to be with someone? This is presence. It means being there physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, being present and available to someone. What does it mean to be for someone? This is advocacy. It means ongoing support. This means for men not going to work, standing around the water cooler and talking about how you wish your wife would just let you do the things that you want to do. Or for what women calling up your friends and saying, boy, I wish my husband would just get his crap together and get this to-do list done. This is advocacy, being for someone. And unto someone. This is commitment to see your spouse flourish in this life within the boundaries of God's intent. To see them grow and become what God intends them to be. And so this is the, this is the intent for God, for, by God for marriage. This is covenant love. Grounds them in God's love for his people. And why? Why is this the case? This is rooted and finds its place in God's unwavering commitment to us, his people. God's covenant love to his people. He is with us. He is imminent. He is totally present in the person and person of Jesus Christ, taking on flesh in our world. And he sends his spirit to dwell in his new creatures, understanding our emotional difficulties, understanding our physical ailments, our psychological limitations, our spiritual struggles. He is for us. He is advocating for us despite our broken state, going to the throne of grace, pleading our case before us, before God, making our adoption in the family of God possible. And he is unto us. He is shaping us and forming us into his image. He is restoring our humanity. He is building back what was initially intended where God spoke Adam and Eve into existence in the garden. And marriage then, listen to me, marriage then is a reflection of this covenant love that God displays to his people. When humans break that picture through sexual infidelity, sexual immorality, or abandonment, that is where we find New Testament allowance for divorce and remarriage. With that in mind, God's intent is never for divorce. With that in mind, God's intent is never for divorce. It's always to mirror his covenant love for his people in the marriage relationship. 
If covenant love is being displayed in the marriage relationship, these allowances aren't necessary. It is because of your hardness of heart, he says. Because of your hardness of heart that this is so. We're working towards wholeness, towards completeness, towards perfection through the power in us, through the power of the Spirit of Christ. But marriages are subject to sin and are not going to. We need to own this. Marriages are subject to sin and are not going to reflect the covenant love of God in every situation at all times. So here's where citizens of the kingdom are different. We've been talking about this for the past two weeks, and I want to drive this home this morning. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven do not subscribe to the ethic of self. Remember our discussion from previous weeks about the ethic of self. What is the ethic of self? The ethic of self that says that self-love is the highest good. We reject this paradigm. We reject the paradigm. The Bible rejects the paradigm that says in order to love others, you must love yourself first. Love that focuses on self first cannot love others according to Scripture. Love that loves or focuses on self first cannot be with someone, cannot be for someone or unto someone, with which will inevitably end up in a marriage relationship frustrated about lack of individual identity. It will end up frustrated about not having a vision of success that's similar will end up frustrated about not having priorities and interests that intersect with one another. The second half of the great commandment from Leviticus 19:18 that Jesus quotes throughout the New Testament and the New Testament authors also find helpful assumes that our bent is to love ourselves first, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. What it says is that you must love others with the same priority, intensity, frequency, and tenacity that you love, that you're bent to love yourself with, that you're inclined to love yourself with. It's a call to die to self, to take up your cross, to do what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 4, not to look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And by rejecting the ethic of self, we embrace the ethic from above. We embrace a morality which comes from above, which exists for others. And we see this ethic playing out with crystal clarity and white-hot intensity in the marriage relationship. So Jesus doesn't come to his followers and say, you don't get divorce and remarriage. He says, you don't get marriage. Before we move to the conclusion this morning, I want to point out Jesus' call to action for the past two weeks. The past two weeks when we've looked at anger and lust, the call to action when we looked at anger is the call to action is urgency and reconciliation. The call to action when we talked about lust from last week, when we called, talked about lust is the call, the call to action is radical repentance. Think with me. Think with me here. A marriage relationship where you are not focused on yourself but on your spouse. A marriage relationship where you urgently seek reconciliation when you sin against your spouse. A marriage relationship where you, in humility, are openly killing your own sin and doing away with the instruments of your own sin. This is God's intent for marriage. Two people selflessly denying themselves and existing for their spouse. The allowance for divorce is given in the New Testament. They exist 
when there are clear denials of this intent. Sexual immorality elevates self and discards your spouse. Abandonment elevates self and discards your spouse. But the reverse should always be true. Should always be true. The ethic of the, from above says this should always be true. Discard self, elevate others. This is seen in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus who deserved no punishment set himself aside, emptied himself, became obedient to even, even to the point of death on the cross on our behalf and this is the gospel. Our marriages are called to reflect this. Our lives are are called to this to reflect this, and it doesn't matter what it costs. Inevitably, it will cost us everything. The question that we've asked at the, when we come to the end of our time here in each of these sections so far is, so what? So what? Jesus gives us the so what in the first two, urgency and reconciliation and uh, a radical pursuit of repentance but in this one, he doesn't necessarily give us a so what. So let me give us a few things that come out of this from our New Testament understanding of divorce and remarriage and marriage. There are a few of us, again, there are a few of us who have not been affected by this loved one, friend, family member, ourselves, who have been affected by divorce and remarriage. And we've see, sought to understand what the Bible says, but it is so complex and it's so difficult. And here's what you need to know. There are three things here that I'm going to share with you. This is this exhaustive? No. This is not intended to be exhaustive. But here are the three things that, that we need to walk away from this morning. The topic of divorce and remarriage fixes us firmly in the tension that exists throughout the Sermon on the Mount regarding mercy and righteousness. What does it mean to live as a citizen of the kingdom, as one who is righteous? And what does it mean to be merciful? to be actively reducing the effects of sin on our world. How do these two things coincide? Very difficult to understand. There is a tension here. If we try to logic this out, a lot of times we're going we're gonna to come to a place of frustration. We need to see that these two things are important, that we are calling people to a deep and profound understanding of what it means to be married. But we are also seeking to demonstrate mercy to them when they find themselves in a difficult situation. Talk about that more in a second. The fifth beatitude says this: "Blessed are those who are blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy." So, new creatures, kingdom citizens, are actively seeking to reduce the effects of sin in our world and redirecting away from the ethic of self and onto the ethic from above by the way that we live and the way that we speak. And for each of us, we are seeking to reduce, if you are in Christ, seek to reduce the effects of sin on the world by seeking a righteousness that is a step with the newness that has taken place inside. This is where I'm convinced that the church has failed our culture dramatically. We say, we protect the view of marriage, but we are unwilling to lift a finger when people find themselves in complex, difficult situations. Or, we subscribe to a loose view, we discard the biblical view of marriage, 
and we say, because of, because of this discarded view of biblical marriage, now we can actually help people. The Bible tells us we must do both. High view of marriage and a high view of people. That leads us to the next concluding point this morning. The local church is called to unwaveringly protect a biblical view of marriage, but also to protect the marginalized, the downtrodden, and the abused. While divorce is never God's intent, while divorce is never God's intent, people who find themselves in abusive marriage relationships must be protected by the church. This is a non-negotiable. The church has something to say here. The church has something to say here. And not the church as an organization, but the people who make up the local church. Exodus talks about a husband's responsibility in the marriage relationship to provide food, clothing, shelter, covenant love, to meet physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual needs, one spouse for the other. And abuse in any one of those areas breaks down the biblical understanding of marriage. Providing physical shelter is totally nullified when that place is not safe, both emotionally, physically, psychologically. In our highly individualistic culture, that does us so many disservices, says that marriage is personal. That's personal. It's none of my business. But again, this is the prerogative of the local church to protect the marginalized, the downtrodden, the abused. If you see physically abusive husband or wife, if you see emotionally abusive husband or wife, if you see a spiritually, psychologically abusive husband or wife, you cannot remain silent. You must take action. This morning, if you're in an abusive relationship, the church is here to protect you. This morning, if you're in an abusive relationship, the church is here to protect you. We will give up our physical well-being. We will give up our time. We will give up our lives. We reflect Jesus. When he says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This morning, if you find yourself, now I, don't, I don't know where all of you are this morning. This morning, if you find yourself dishing out physical, emotional, psychological abuse, if you find yourself in that position, this body will protect your victim from you. Men, if you knock your wife down physically, if you knock her down emotionally, if you knock her down psychologically, if you knock her down spiritually, I'm coming for you. You need to repent, you need to turn from that sin, you need to get around people who can hold you accountable, who can talk to you, who can help you understand what a biblical standard of manhood is. Does that require humility? Yes. But you're acting like a child who pitches a fit when it takes, takes it out of others when he doesn't get his way. Start acting like a man. Being a man means laying down your life for your spouse, not draining life from her. And this obviously goes vice versa. Women, the same is true for you. Acknowledge that the physical, emotional, and psychological blows that were due to you because of your sin were redirected onto the person of Jesus Christ. 
And friends, maybe we come to a text like this and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to intercede for someone. I don't know how to actively protect victims of abuse and confront those who are abusive. I'm going to give you two, two ways, just two things to think about to move that direction. First, understand and live by the ethic from above, not the ethic of self. The ethic that sees God's image embedded in all people and seeks reconciliation, restoration, and the reduction of the effects of sin in this world. That lays down our lives for our friends, for our faith family. Second, this one, that first one a little bit theoretical, this one is intensely practical. Build margin into your life. Build margin into your life. How can we be attuned to the difficulties in the lives of others when we're never available to them? This is not just my job as pastor. This command, this prerogative falls on everyone who is part of the local church. School starts this week. Inevitably, many of us, especially young families, signed our kids up for 10,000 different activities every night of the week. is committed. It's booked. If we fill our schedules with an activity, if every waking moment is scheduled, we won't have time for people. We won't see when this is happening because we won't have a relationship with others because when something appears wrong, we'll brush it off because we've got to get kids to soccer practice. That's personal. I hope they get it worked out. i got to go do stuff. Trust me when I say this. Trust me when I say this, parents of children, get this in your head. Young children, old children, whatever, adult children. You, trust me, it is far more formative for your children to watch you care for a hurting brother or sister than it is for them to kick a ball around in the field. People are hurting, but they don't want to bother you because every time they ask how you're doing, you say, just busy, busy. The call is to stop it. Slow down. Exist for others. Really get to know them. I would submit to us many times we live frantic lives because we want to keep people at arm's length because this stuff is messy. It's a bunch of garbage and we don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to deal with people's crap. I don't want to do what I, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. But the follower of Jesus builds margin in to have tough conversations like Jesus did with the Lord of the well. He didn't show up and say, I gotta go heal somebody real quick. Can we can we put this conversation on pause? I gotta flip some tables in the temple. I'll be back later to talk about your pain. Maybe not show up. We we do not. We emphasize community a lot here at Buffalo City Church. If you've been around us, you understand that we've emphasized community a lot. What we don't do is emphasize community because we want a neat little networking opportunity. We want, we want far more than that. We emphasize community here because it's only within the context of Christ-centered relationship that the messy stuff of life gets worked through. We cannot provide, we cannot protect the marginalized, the downtrodden, the abused, the victimized, 
We spend 60 to 90 minutes together every week. So we meet in community groups here at Buffalo City Church. This is not designed to be a throwaway activity that gets scratched in the calendar because something better comes up. This is designed to be a place where relationship is initiated, relationship is forged, which speaks to the difficult stuff of, being, of life being navigated. We exist for others. We need to stop thinking about ourselves and what's convenient and start investing in the lives of others no matter what it costs you. Okay. Finally then, this is the last thought this morning. So it pertains to divorce and remarriage. There is now no condemnation for the, those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the truth that Paul tells his Roman readers in Romans 8, 1. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've screwed up a marriage relationship and ended the divorce and you're dealing with an intense amount of guilt and shame. Maybe your husband had an affair and left you broken, but you feel like you could have done so much more to reconcile and you feel guilty. Maybe you're struggling in your current marriage situation right now and thoughts of divorce have caused your heart to despair. Am I a child of God? How could a citizen of the kingdom of heaven have these thoughts? Friends, like the Samaritan woman at the well, the call is clear. Know Jesus. Know the healing that comes from acknowledging that no amount of frustration, no amount of self-loathing, no amount of redirection, no amount of breathing techniques, no amount of reshaping the narrative can bring you peace. It is only through acknowledging that your sin and your sinful state have separated you from God and that trusting Jesus to wash away that sin and grant you the righteousness that you need, that is the only way that peace will come. We need to get in this headspace together as a people. Allow our hearts to be comforted. The Lord is your shepherd. He gently leads you. He brings you to living water. Crisp, clean, clear water. Drink deeply. His love for you has swallowed up your sin. His death means you don't have to die. His life means that you live. There is green pasture. Lie down in it. Rest. It's taken care of in Christ. Let's pray.